Friends, will you please pray with me? Good and gracious God, we give thanks for your spirit that fills our world and fills our lives. And we ask that by that spirit, we will hear your word for us today. Amen. Mark 8, 31 to 38. Then Jesus began to teach his disciples. The human one must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the legal experts, and be killed, and then after three days rise from the dead. He said this plainly, but Peter took a hold of Jesus and scolding him, began to correct him. What? You can't be saying this. <laughs> Jesus turned and looked at his disciples and then sternly corrected Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking God's thoughts, but human thoughts. After calling the crowd together with his disciples, Jesus said to them, All who want to come after me must say no to themselves. Take up their cross and follow me. All who want to save their lives will lose them. But all who lose their lives because of me and because of the good news will save them. Why would people gain the whole world but lose their lives? What will people give in exchange for their lives? Whoever is ashamed of me in my words in this unfaithful and sinful generation, the human one will be ashamed of that person when he comes in the Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Lent is the season when we join Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. And today, it's a pretty rough road. Our text is a little bit of a gut punch for the disciples. In the verses right before this, Jesus asks the disciples, Who do you say I am? And Peter replies, You're the Christ. Right? And, and this is the moment they know that they are walking alongside the Messiah. Talk about good news. But Jesus follows up that good news with the news that he'll suffer, be rejected, killed, and raised again. And Peter just can't handle the idea of a Messiah being rejected by his own people. So he lets his thoughts be known. And Jesus tells him, get behind me, Satan. Those words are so powerful, they overwhelm us. But, but what does Jesus mean? Well, let's start with the name calling. <laughs> Satan is a Hebrew word that describes a human adversary or the name of the superhuman adversary of God. So Jesus is telling Peter, like, when you say I shouldn't suffer and die, you are completely opposed to who I am. So get behind me. And Peter, rather, and Jesus doesn't tell Peter to get out of his sight or to disappear. Jesus says, get behind me, follow me. And then Jesus describes how to follow him. If you want to become my follower, deny yourself. If you want to save your life, you'll lose it. 
But if you lose your life, you'll gain your life. And this doesn't make a ton of sense. I mean, if you lose your life, you're not alive. So how have you gained your life? If you save your life, you are alive. So have you lost your life? What, what's Jesus talking about? Well, there are, there are lots of answers to that question. And, and the first one I encountered many years ago explains that Jesus is, re, is referring to the difference between our earthly life and our eternal life. If we want to save our earthly life, we'll lose our eternal life. But if we give up our earthly life, we will gain eternal life in heaven. And, and actually, I, I believe there's a lot of truth in this answer. And I also believe that if we interpret these words to mean that we should embrace suffering in this life to gain a prize in the next life, then we'll do great damage to ourselves and to the gospel. In 1949, Reverend Howard Thurman wrote that, that his generation finds very little that is meaningful or intelligent in the teachings of the church because of the general impression that Christianity is essentially an otherworldly religion, having as its motto, Take all the world, but give me Jesus. Christianity seems to be a betrayal of the Negro in the hands of his enemies by forcing his attention upon heaven, forgiveness, love, and the like. Thurman explained that he believed that salvation does describe the afterlife, but salvation doesn't only refer to the afterlife. Salvation is the redemption for all oppressed people in every generation, in every age, including right now, in, including Jesus' age and Jesus' people, because Jesus was a member of a minority community controlled by a dominant militaristic Roman Empire. And, and, and Judaism was a culture, a religion, a civilization, a people who lost their status, their freedom, their autonomy, and, and yet being all these things and losing all this, they clung to God's promises of restoration in the land of their ancestors. For the Jewish community, for Jesus' community, redemption and salvation began in the here and now. The teachings of Jesus were a technique of survival for the oppressed, a technique that began with radical change to the inner spiritual life of the individual, a, a technique that began with losing your life in order to save it. Because people like Jesus faced the crushing weight of religious and cultural and political oppression. They, they saved their lives with fear. And again, I'm leaning on just the profound and fantastic insight of Howard Thurman in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited where he teaches that fear is what protects the oppressed from complete nervous collapse. Because when one faces a 
a constant threat of violence. They commit to memory ways of behaving that reduce their exposure to violence. But they end up living in a constant state of fight or flight that dehumanizes and kills the soul. So the fear, which served originally as a safety device, a kind of protective mechanism for the weak, finally becomes death for the self. The power that saves turns into the executioner. The fear of losing one's life will cost them their life. Or as Jesus says, all who want to save their lives will lose them. And Thurman knew this to be true because as a, as a black man in America in the 1940s, he lived it. And he knew Jesus lived it too. He knew Jesus wasn't talking about accepting sufferings in exchange for the life to come. He knew Jesus was talking about finding life in the present moment finding inner liberation that would enable the oppressed to live lives of dignity, free from the fear that bound them. But how does this happen? Thurman says it begins by truly accepting that we are children of God. When he was a child, his grandmother told him of secret church services of fellow slaves, where these services would build with energy into a triumphant climax where the minister would tell everyone there, you, you are not slaves. You are God's children. And this reality, this truth, gave them a ground of, of self-dignity and self-worth that could absorb the fear that surrounded them. And Thurman's clear that, that this alone is, is not enough, but without this, nothing else is of value. Because once we accept that we are children of God, our worth and dignity isn't dependent on those around us, on what they think of us or what they might do to us. As again, I'm gonna go back to Thurman because he's just so good on this. He says that the individual now feels that he counts, he belongs. He senses the confirmation of his roots and even death becomes a little thing. The awareness that man is a child of the God of religion, who is at the same time the God of life. This creates a profound faith in life that nothing can destroy. Or as Jesus says it, those who lose their lives will gain their lives. In Jesus, Thurman found a way to resist a dominating world without losing his soul or forfeiting his humanity. His was a quest for a, for a liberating spirituality that could undergird societal transformation, a, 
a spirituality that shaped his friend and student, Martin Luther King. But these, these ideas are not only for the leaders of civil rights movements. Uh, this last week, uh, well, I guess I should say I, I started uh, an essay uh, that, uh, by a Buddhist teacher that like, a non-Christian friend had, had passed along to me. I read the opening paragraph and was surprised to find the words of Jesus that, that those who lose their lives will gain them. Right? And this essay was all about the power our desires hold over us, the way our egos dominate our thinking, and how our insecure place in the world paralyzes us. I mean, I can just quote Alan Watts, the author, who said that a person does not really begin to be alive until they've lost themselves, until they've released the anxious grasp with which they normally hold their life, their property, their reputation, and position. And the more that I end up reading other spiritual traditions, the more I keep bumping into quotes from Jesus about the path to spiritual freedom. Mystics from across the world and across the centuries keep returning to the truth that our, that our inner life is bound by all we cling to. And the only way to freedom is surrender. We, we can't control the realities of our environment, but we can control our relationship with our environment. As I heard, uh, I think Jack Cornfield say, we can't control the waves, but we can learn to surf. And, and today I've been talking about that idea of finding inner freedom and peace so that all that like is outside of us doesn't control and dominate us and i've been talking about it in the most extreme circumstances of the struggle of oppressed people people who whose backs are against the wall who are seeking dignity in life and that's that's, that's way up here, and not all of us are living in that reality now. Some are. But we all face internal and external pressures and fears and expectations to be a certain kind of way and live a certain kind of life. And there is but one starting point in the journey to be free from all those things that bind us and control us. So friends, hear and embrace the good news that you, you are not a slave. You, you're not a failure. You, you are not your possessions or your lack thereof. You are a child of God, beloved by God. Amen.